CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io. Hello there, I'm George Frankly. And I'm going to take a look at how even the best and brightest people can make truly stupid decisions and terrible predictions, and what we can learn from them. This is Dare to be Stupid. This time on Dare to be Stupid, the only thing worse than a get-rich-quick scheme is a save-the-world-quick scheme, and we're all falling for it. When lazy brains have good intentions, we start choking on our aspirations. In the 1996 episode of The Simpsons titled Much Apu About Nothing, the residents of that, wait, I'm sorry, this is a terrible way to introduce a subject. Ahem, hello. Today I'm going to tell you a story about recycling. Now then, in the 1996 episode of The Simpsons titled Much Apu About Nothing, the residents of Springfield are horrified to see a lost brown bear wandering their city streets. This cartoon bear, drawn just as endearingly and googly-eyed as any of the jaundiced main cast, picks at trash and sniffs at things confusedly while the townsfolk go hysterical with wide-eyed terror. Within minutes, the bear is tranquilized and hauled away without incident. Rather, the incident occurs afterwards, when Homer leads an angry mob to City Hall to demand that Mayor Quimby do something about the town's intolerable bear problem. They had seen a live bear, for ostensibly the first and only time, and now wanted a solution to the crisis. Soon the city is under constant surveillance by official Bear Patrol helicopters, and Bear Patrol-branded stealth bombers are always at the ready. The remaining 19 minutes of this 22-minute episode are not about the subject of bears whatsoever, and to the best of my knowledge, the Bear Patrol has never been mentioned again. The people of Springfield saw a bear, a reasonably common animal on this continent, and immediately wanted the bear problem dealt with. They wanted the problem back out of sight and out of mind, and were willing to throw money at it. So they did, and they never worried about bears again. Which they hadn't worried about before, either. So there you have it. Recycling. America's Bear Patrol. Recycling is America's Bear Patrol, and the Mobro 4000 trash barge was the wandering bear that did it. The Mobro 4000 was a New York municipal trash barge that lit up international headlines in 1987, and those headlines are what's important. Very little about the actual barge or the trash therein mattered. What shaped the recycling movement was the visibility and the story. As the press would tell it, the Mobro 4000 was hauling over 3,000 metric tons of municipal solid waste that New York City landfills simply didn't have room for. It was desperately, pathetically crawling down the East Coast and even into South America looking for any port that would let it offload. The press followed it from port to port as it was rejected at every turn, until it eventually surrendered and returned to New York months later. Environmental crisis averted. Good job, guys. Pack it up. We're done here. But that was the story. The true tragedy of the Mobro 4000. Oh, that sounds like a really good Flaming Lips album. The true saga diverged wildly from the news coverage at almost every step. 
To begin with, the barge was not looking for some chump to take on its excess garbage. The garbage had been requested. The trash began in a landfill in Islip, where it was earmarked for a methane harvesting pilot program in North Carolina, an early run of today's natural gas collection process. That's a big omission for the story. It was being sent to a plant in Moorhead City, Carolina, effectively to be partially recycled. But when word got around in Carolina that New York City was looking to dump thousands of tons of its garbage on their shores, protesters and local press gathered at the port well ahead of the barge. Local authorities caved to the pressure and told the barge to turn back. The deal was off. The people had seen a bear, and they wanted it gone. Inexplicably, the barge pressed onward for two months looking for a port before returning to the Islip landfill and incinerating its cargo, the exact same fate it would have faced had it never left. Two months of aerial photographs of the intransigent trash barge in the news sold Americans on the landfill crisis for good. Our landfills were landfull, and if you don't want trash in your backyard, you need to embrace a new way of doing things. Recycling had its watershed moment. We needed a whole new system. We needed a bear patrol. But hold on. That's the other omission in the story. There was no landfill crisis. There's a different kind of global waste crisis going on, and we'll get to that. But the idea that American landfills were at capacity and spilling over was patently false. The landfills weren't overflowing. But Americans had just seen a barge of trash wander out of its proper, out-of-sight spaces and jump to a wrong-headed conclusion, that there was a trash problem and we needed to get rid of it. Recycling was the answer. Stop throwing things in the trash and put them to use instead. But after colossal investments and a massive restructuring of our entire waste management infrastructure, we've still ignored the source of our problems, and even made the environment worse. The evidence overwhelmingly shows that the recycling movement is a failure, not because recycling doesn't work, but because we don't. The real landfill crisis is that human beings and their god-awful decision-making skills are sabotaging every attempt to make things better. Every one of us and our terrible brains share the blame. From the moment the stupid Mobro 4000 hit the front pages, the recycling movement has been steered by marketing and emotion instead of science or results. So, what mental dysfunction has caused all this? What lizard brain impulse has led us all astray? Well, it's not the lizard brain. It's our civilized, compassionate mammal brain that's making the mistake. The mistake is that we really do mean well. People want to be good. They want to do better. But they also want to avoid discomfort. They want to avoid guilt, stress, and mental effort. Our instinctive desire to do good things but not make ourselves uncomfortable has led to what experts call aspirational recycling. The system of recycling to feel like we're making a difference instead of making a difference. We need to talk about cognitive ease and cognitive strain. I've mentioned them before here and there, but today we're going to get our hands dirty. I will keep arguing that most people are inherently good until I'm blue in the face, but in doing so I have to address the other side of that coin. Most people are inherently lazy. Okay, maybe that's a mean way to put it. It's more reasonable to say that the human brain often defaults to max efficiency over max performance. It really wants to run in eco mode whenever possible, and your rapid response lizard brain is the eco mode. As I've described before, one of the core concepts in behavioral economics is the distinction between the two cognitive systems of your brain, what Daniel Kahneman refers to as System 1 and System 2. System 1 is what allows you to read a traffic sign in your native language before you've even decided to read it. It tells you the name of that familiar person or thing in front of you without you actively thinking about it. It's the quick-firing image recognition system that looks for familiar patterns and delivers confident guesses without conscious effort. Your complex cognition, System 2, is where the heavy thinking comes in. New situations, novel problems, unfamiliar faces, these all require the analytical thought of your higher brain functions, instead of the simple chatbot AI that runs our day-to-day. -day. 
Complex System 2 thinking is an active drain on your body's glucose far beyond the quickfire decisions of System 1. It's literally the difference between sport mode and mileage mode, and your instincts want to save fuel. Your instincts look for decisions and solutions that don't require shifting gears. This is known as cognitive ease. An answer that immediately looks good, sounds good, and most of all feels good, will be easy to embrace without ever getting your upper brain involved. This was illustrated by a small cognitive quiz developed by psychologist Shane Frederick in 2005. Among other questions, he asks, If it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? If you weren't already looking for the trick question here, you might fall into the obvious trap of thinking five machines, five minutes, five widgets, therefore 100 machines, 100 minutes, 100 widgets. That's rapid thinking pattern recognition. If you don't make an active decision to stop and think the numbers through, then you won't get the correct answer, which is five minutes. Brain teasers like this exist to exploit that boundary between our thought processes. If your mind sees a route of cognitive ease, it'll usually take it. Only when presented with something unfamiliar or challenging, a cognitive strain, will it be forced to spin up the higher thinking motors. It is for this reason that counterintuitive learning hacks can actually work wonders. For example, printing reading material at a lower quality in a challenging font can actually improve the reader's comprehension. That little psychology review fits uncomfortably back in with our recycling dilemma. Recycling isn't a system that reduces waste or inefficiency, it's a system that feels like we're reducing waste and inefficiency with minimal effort. We split some of our trash into a different bin from the other trash, and we're solving the problem. Clean, simple, elegant. So what about it exactly is not working? Well, um, everything, all of it. We'll take a break for a moment, and then I'll try to break down why recycling is a failed business, and what it can actually teach us about how we handle money and investment, especially when we have good intentions. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go with Nexo. For starters, you get free crypto for each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields? Up to 17% paid out daily. Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Instead, borrow instant cash against your assets. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. So, I'm not here to give a crash course in supply chain economics or materials engineering. I'm also not qualified, but if you like it, I'll fake it. No, I'm just going to hit the big points here. Recycling is, at its core, like any other idealized high-efficiency system. It's a nearly closed loop, in which most of what goes in comes back out ready to loop through again. The same way high-efficiency engines get as much energy out of fuel as possible before needing to add more fuel, Recycling is supposed to use material as many times as possible before needing new, raw, or virgin materials added into the loop. The dream of any efficient system is a truly closed loop. Let's call the stages of that loop collection, reclamation, and resale. You have a waste product, it is collected by the system, reclaimed as usable material, and then resold as a recycled product. Reuse, recycle, repeat, onwards and forever, always twirling towards freedom. But those steps are not that simple. Collecting recyclable materials is, frankly, a show. Local governments learned quickly and harshly that the only way to drive large collection volumes from residents is to make it as easy as possible. That results in mixed, or single-stream collection, where a household throws everything they think is recyclable into one colorful bin for collection. This creates the largest amount of participation and the largest flow of material collection. Except, that material is generally garbage. Literally. 
the low effort collection drives people to put out all sorts of things that are definitely not recyclable. Most often, for some reason, greasy pizza boxes and used diapers. The everything-in-one-bin method creates a massive overhead cost for processing and sorting, necessitating an entire infrastructure of systems and personnel for parsing and separating every little item. Non-recyclable and biohazardous contaminants render entire lots unusable and unsafe to handle. Again, that overhead is massive. More trucks carrying more material, more staff to sort and process, and all to sift through a mess that, according to the EPA, is about two-thirds unusable garbage. Frustratingly, you cannot solve this problem by being more careful with collection. The more rules you enforce on how households clean and separate recyclables, the less households will bother. In 2008, Houston, a city with strict rules for recycling collection, had a participation rate of 2.6%, the lowest in a country where the national average is 32. The city had a much better ratio of usable material in its collections, but much less material overall. The money saved on sorting was little comfort compared to the cost of running collection trucks that would come back empty every week. People want to participate, and they want to help. It's the only reason anybody even tries to recycle in the first place. But if you put the cognitive strain of deciding how to process recycling on them, they're going to reach their limit. People are busy, and tired, and their backs hurt, and the weather sucks, and it's impossible to find comfortable shoes in exactly my size, and I've, um, I've forgotten where this was going, but I forgot to haul out my recycle bin this week. My point is, if you want consumer participation, you need to provide it with ease. Transportation, collection, and sorting is over 60% of recycling overhead costs. Every penny of that goes into the supposed value of the reclaimed material. Reclaimed material, frustratingly, doesn't end up being particularly cost-effective for companies to use. As consumers, citizens, or any kind of participants in society, it's really not doing us any favors. We're all so afraid of the bear problem, that a wandering barge of trash could show up on our doorstep, that we bought a solution that put it out of sight and out of mind. This business model isn't uncommon. It may seem greedy to always want more for less, but at least we often want to do more good for less effort. Despite the lack of any tangible effect on our lives, most people still look favorably on recycling and report a sense of satisfaction at participating in it. It feels like you're doing good, even if you're not really doing anything. Hence the name that has stuck to it over the last 10 years. Aspirational Recycling. Recycling to bolster our hopes, if not to bolster our environment. Step away from the crisis of figuring out which plastics go in which bin, and look at how this behavior affects other kinds of businesses. Aspirational systems are the backbone of any charity operation, trusting that people would like to do something good but only have the energy to throw money at it and hope for the best. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. It's very easy to think of charity as a simple machine, a big funnel that takes money and volunteers and pipelines them directly to where they're needed. And again, our brains like what's easy. But that perception assumes a one-and-done setup, like attaching a gutter rain spout or redirecting a stream. Markets are dynamic, and a charity is more like an old-timey switchboard than a funnel in a bucket. It requires regular, skilled human input. Despite this, one of the most popular metrics by which consumers judge a charity organization is its overhead. People want a charity that funnels as much of their donation as possible straight to the people who need it. Charity review groups often put the overhead percentage front and center when passing approval on an organization. As Vox journalist Kelsey Piper discussed in 2018, one of the Kingmaker Charity Review Network's Charity Navigator had so much influence that its ratings would dramatically increase or decrease revenue for an organization every year. But it struggled with the fact that one of the most demanded and most forward-facing ratings criteria was also one of the worst. More and more consumers wanted to focus on low overhead charities and little else. When charities focus on keeping overhead low, Piper wrote, they often do worse work. 
I'm telling you right now, it's the Bear Patrol all over again. People want a magic bullet for recycling that would throw everything in a bin and make it new again, just like they want a magic bullet for charity that'll simply liquefy their money and inject it right into the eyeballs of their problems. But just like recycling, the only way to get anything done is to have skilled people processing the intake, making sensible decisions, and making sure your materials are being put to the right use. To get anything done right, there needs to be capital costs and infrastructure. There needs to be training. There needs to be enough employee wages that you don't bleed talent and turnover. Whether your product is sandwiches or allocating donations, if you skimp on staff and resources, your product will suffer. Charities that boasted sub-1% overhead were beloved by donors yet also suffered from the worst mismanagement. Outdated or broken computer systems, decrepit office spaces, underpaid and underqualified employees, all of these things became obstacles to the business of making productive connections between donors and people who need them. Piper lamented that even Consumer Reports Charity Guide that previous year covered overhead rates exclusively, with zero coverage of actual charitable impact. Impact is harder to measure, and its relationship to revenue is complex and nuanced. And the brain doesn't want nuance. Nuance is vague, and complexity is a strain, and our brains no want strain. We want to do good things, yes, damn it, but we want to do big number units of good things and see that big number units of good things are delivered. End of story. And a simple, comfortable metric like percentage of overhead is exactly the smooth, sugary paste of easily digestible data that our lizard brains demand. When we let it become more important to feel that we're doing good than to know that we're doing good, we've created another aspirational system. Worse, when we give up responsibility for what's being done with our time and money, we become prey. And on that note, I can't help but remember the monumentally lazy avarice of the Save the Kids token scam, a pump-and-dump crypto coin that promised to somehow both give to charity and bring profit to hodlers. Instagram influencers and pro-gamers hyped up a coin that would, in theory, automatically donate transaction fees to lunches for impoverished schoolchildren, while still being a tradable coin with which to make speculative investments. A lot of people aren't going to look for the nuance when somebody tells them they can support a charity while also making money for themselves. So in summer 2021, when this aspirational token finally rolled out, there were thousands of casual takers. 24 hours later, the rug was pulled. The founders and ambassadors had dumped and run. This was not an elaborate fraud executed by a cabal of genius conmen. This was a bare-bones BSC altcoin cash grab barely on the level of a Nigerian prince email perpetrated by, among others, a professional Fortnite player who was suspended from Fortnite for cheating too much at Fortnite. Many of its promoters were already taking heat from previous rug pulls. My point is, it's no surprise that it didn't merit any profound coverage from even dedicated crypto media. It wasn't really a standout in the vast sea of pump-and-dump scams being hawked by 20-something men who can't at least take a shower before filming this week's apology video. Of all the blips on media radar, this was a speck of mustard on the screen. It's such a memorable scheme to me, though, for the particular net it cast. It was a comforting overlap of greed and charity with a promise of effortlessness. In these ways, it actually had a lot in common with the classic Nigerian 419 scam. It tells some gullible sap that there's a person in need out there, and by barely lifting a finger, you can help them and take home some cash. We associate these clumsy charades with only the dopiest and most gullible members of society, clearly the intended targets. However, if anything I'm saying really needs to hit home, it's this. We're all pretty gullible. It's just a matter of what leverage best pushes our buttons. If an appeal to your greed makes you stow your skepticism, are you gullible or just greedy? If a charity case gets you to circumvent caution, are you gullible or simply a bit too kind? And when any of these tempt us with offers of effortless results, are we really anything else but just a little lazy?
Gullibility is a blanket term for a spectrum of convenient weaknesses, all of which we share in varying degrees. The desire to do good things without expending too much effort is never too far off the table, even for the colder-hearted bastards among us. The threat of cognitive strain drives us to sacrifice security and even autonomy rather than make the tough decisions when they're needed. And that's not always the wrong decision. There's a great many things best left in the hands of experts, or even things of which we're plenty capable, but who the hell has the time? The how and why of shedding the responsibility of decision-making will only become more and more relevant as the spread of decentralized autonomous organizations continues. DAOs, or DAOs, are rapidly growing mainstream application for smart contracts. A group of participants and stakeholders, buying in through one means or another, agree to terms of automation and may even let a programmed algorithm handle their pooled funds towards their specified goal. In many ways, a DAO is at profound risk of the charity bucket dilemma, when you're throwing money at a goal and hoping the system gets it there. Where charities issue overhead out of misguided austerity, DAO participants agree to automation out of a desire to minimize human trust and human centralized responsibility. Trusting other people to make low-stakes decisions can give you great ease. Trusting other people to make high-stakes decisions with your assets can cause great strain. There's a lot to be learned here. By making a transparent, digital-trusted space for the decisions of a community, a DAO has the unique ability to provide cognitive ease to participants while still creating a system that can be results-oriented. A DAO's rules have to be fine-tuned and agreed upon, all under transparent conditions, and this process can become a crucible for burning away aspirational dysfunctions. A refined system can operate simply and subtly, like a quietly self-sufficient mutual fund. But then, an aspirational system can become delusional, pooling money towards little more than buying expensive collectibles and thinking that they share the distribution rights. A manually guided organization can stumble without expertise or flexibility at the helm, and without the ability to adapt to results-oriented metrics, even a fully autonomous system can be as dumb as the humans that created it. Too many of our aspirational systems turn into Ronco Showtime rotisserie ovens, promising that participants need nothing more than to set it and forget it. A system that connects both everyman's and experts and allows them to identify the best metrics of impact could eventually be made aspirational-proofed. So let's come full circle. What can we learn from charities, DAOs, and cognitive ease that could apply to the broken world of recycling? The simple truth is that, in its current state, it is even more ineffective than I can cover in the time that I have. The system's driving motive of satisfying people's feelings rather than improving their world has spiraled out of control for decades. If recycling were impact-motivated rather than fear-reactionary, we would open the door to nuanced, optimized decisions. Those decisions would be challenging to the public, however, because they would constantly be growing and adjusting. As consumers, we want our products, systems, and even our art to spring forth complete and whole, straight from Zeus's forehead. But nuance is a process of refinement. It's a long-term business project. Running a system like a business doesn't need to mean maximizing shareholder profit as it so often ends up. Running recycling like an optimized business means finding that nuance. If oversimplified collection methods give terrible material, and overcomplicated methods give not enough material, we need to stop pretending it's a binary decision. We're making destructive decisions instead of uncomfortable ones. Remember when I said there was no landfill crisis? That was true at the time. There was more than enough space in existing municipal landfills for years, but the growing fear of landfills and emphasis on recycling led to the closure and more and more of them, and that number's been shrinking almost every year since the Mobro. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, our landfills are actually struggling to keep up, and waste is being handled in worse and worse ways. And unfortunately, landfills just aren't the problem. They're ugly, but properly maintained modern landfills are well-contained, 
and engineered to collect natural gas and other organic byproducts for fuel and refinement. Newer, better landfills aren't a solution, but they're a hell of a lot better than more and more unkempt trash accumulating in our coastlines and waterways. We have to staunch the bleeding before we can treat the wound. And recycling hasn't been a productive solution. One of the worst problems is that we're constantly trying to recycle things that a results-driven system wouldn't bother with. Glass is a staple of recycling, yet it's barely a break-even to recycle glass instead of just producing new material. Worse still, it creates externality costs due to glass contamination being hazardous to other material collections and to the workers themselves. Glass isn't even inherently biohazardous. Better to collect it separately and mulch it back into sand than to bother with it. We only recycle it because it feels right. Paper is an absolute mess. The amount of chemical waste created in bleaching, treating, and recycling paper is worse for the environment than just making fresh paper. Worse still, most fresh paper is already made from the shavings and castoffs from the lumber industry to begin with. That's right, nobody is ever cutting down a tree to make paper. Trees are cut down, replanted, and rotated through seasons for lumber, and the scraps of that process makes new paper with the remainder. Paper recycling makes no business sense, yet we're conditioned to feel guilty over it. While it's true that deforestation, especially in wetlands and jungles, is a crisis, that isn't the domain of paper and lumber. Brazil may be clear-cutting rainforests to simply create new exploitable commercial land, but North American lumber has settled into a sustainable process of replanting and rotation for decades. In fact, overall forest coverage in the United States has been increasing for the last hundred years as regrowth has outpaced harvesting, and the clear-cutting of the 1800s expansion has finally been pulled back. The simple fact is that most paper, albeit not all, is so biodegradable that we may as well mulch it with glass instead of trying to Frankenstein it back to life and sell it as a premium green alternative. That leads me to the far end of the aspirational recycling culture. Greenwashing. When a sustainable, green alternative is sold as a more expensive prestige product, it's failed. When the eco-friendly Pilot B2P recycled bottle pen costs 50% more than their regular G2 pen, they've admitted that the system doesn't work. The recycled material isn't cheaper for them, the recycled product isn't incentivized for customers, the end product isn't uniquely benefiting society, it's not even a unique product, they're both the exact same pen inside. The only thing they're selling is aspirations and prestige. Spend more, and you are a good person. Spend more, and feel bad less. Prestige eco-products have good branding and a good message, but far-reaching change requires far-reaching market appeal. Until it is economical for the majority of pen-using, fingers-having consumers to switch over, the eco-friendly pen is still just aspirational. There's much more I could cover, as it's certainly a subject I hold dear, but the key points are there. None of these systems or products make business sense for the people who matter. We forget that as consumers, we should be critical not only of what our money gets us, but what we're getting for our casual labor and participation. Our desire to distribute responsibility elsewhere, to put trust elsewhere, and to settle for what feels good would never pass muster in our professional lives. We'd never tolerate aspirational systems if we were depending on those charities, or if we were looking for returns on our investments. We want a magic bullet. We want a perfect solution where we can put our money in a box and risk-free profit comes out. When we put our trash in the right bin and the world is cleaner and better. We never want to settle for nuance, for harm reduction. We want the comfort of one and done. But it takes cognitive strain to make the right decisions. Sometimes we need to think a little harder to ask the right questions. Sometimes we need to choose a less convenient product if we want to vote with our dollars. The Guru Ram Das, one of the most influential figures of the hippie movement, famously said, Be here now. Live fully in the moment, be cognizant and present in everything you do. Don't set it and forget it. Don't go on autopilot. 
Your effort isn't important only when you think investments and paychecks are on the line. Your entire life is investment in the future, and your mind will be better for the exercise. Another aspirational decision deferred is another day of junk food for your brain. Oh, and recycle your cans. I, I forgot to mention, recycling aluminum actually works. Like, of all the things, uh, that's actually the good one. Thanks for listening. Remember, no matter how smug I make it sound, all of my job titles are of the armchair variety. If you're an expert and I'm getting it wrong, I'd like to hear about it.